from WUFTFM. This is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so glad you could tune in today in this program. I'm happy to welcome to the program for the first time today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Jake Wolf. And we're going to be talking today about end-of-life care in pets. Now, that may include palliative care. That may even include euthanasia. So I just want to give you a heads up that this uh, topic is maybe not for everybody, but it's an important topic because if you have a pet, one day your pet will get older and you will have to make some decisions about that pet's quality of life. So stay tuned because Animal Airwaves Live is coming back after this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Jake Wolf. And today we really will be talking about the health and welfare of animals because our topic today concerns end-of-life care for our pets. Now, anybody who has an older pet or who has had an older pet or who will someday have an older pet will probably find this topic of interest because someday your pet will be old and will likely suffer from some ailments that may hasten uh, its demise. And these may make your pet quite uncomfortable. And so on today's program, we're going to be talking about things like quality of life and palliative care and even euthanasia. So I just want to give you a heads up that this uh, is is a sensitive topic and I understand it could be upsetting for people. So fair warning. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wolf. I'm, I'm glad that you could be here. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. Now, one thing that has been a theme of this program for over a decade is that Our pets are often cherished members of the family. I mean, (laughs) most people uh, who have pets love them, and in many instances, they are the most popular members of the household. Now, (laughs) that also means that for many of us, we invest a lot of emotional energy, emotional capital into these living creatures. And as I've said before on this program, you know, we as humans can pay a pretty high cost for loving living things. That is to say, uh, someday we will likely lose them. And it hurts to think that these pets that right now might be, you know, running about the house and having a great time will someday be older because for most of the pets that people have, dogs and cats in particular, uh, these pets are not going to outlive us generally. Yeah. And so we do one day face the prospect of making decisions that require a good deal of introspection and perspective. And there's often no there's often no good way to go about it. It's going to hurt one way or the other. Absolutely. And I think not only having them throughout our lifetime, but some a lot of the animals that we deal with are have a generational relationship. Maybe it was a cat that was housed with their elderly mother that then when the mother passes becomes theirs. And not only as that animal ages, not only are they mourning the loss of that animal, but they're remourning the loss of, of their mother or their spouse. Um, 
I once treated a, a 78-year-old parrot that had been in the, gra you know, belonged to the grandparents and then passed down two generations. Um, and, and so that is a factor in a lot of these cases. Yeah, too. or in the, sort of the inverse scenario, maybe it is a pet that was your child's first pet. Absolutely. And your child has grown up and now is off in college or something, and you have this animal that is now at the age that it is is reaching the end of its life. And, and this can create an emotionally charged scenario. Definitely. In, in which the most important consideration should be the animal's quality of life. And yet we are human beings and we're not always capable of thinking in a completely disinterested, rational way. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, often difficult too. I think as people were often, um, we often think in quantity um, because we can appreciate the future and think, um, you know, suffer, tolerate suffering, knowing that we'll have more time with our loved ones. Animals, at least we think, um, live more in the present and, and don't have that future expectation. And that's what makes the quality time rather than the quantity um, so, so important. Yeah. Them. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That is to say that we as human beings are aware of our own mortality we most people generally are looking to live as long as we possibly can yeah and you know that is i don't know that's kind of a, an innate thing i think of in people you know this sort of uh will to preservation and self-preservation and mm -hmm. also you know maybe it comes with the where you have hope right that maybe you will yet be well exactly and with our pets <clears throat> It's natural to kind of put some of that on them as well, to project some of, of that onto them. That is, that's easy to understand. Absolutely. And, um, and yet it, it may not be the case. You know, we, like I said, um, we, it's hard to know. I unfortunately can't ask my dogs or my cats and I have a parrot. I guess she'll respond a little bit, but I can't ask them, you know, what are your, hopes, what, um, yeah. <laughs> what do you regard um, for end of life, things like that. And, and so we need to try to um, substitute our, we, we need to find ways to assess that with nonverbal cues and assess what they enjoy about life uh, using our interpretation and our understanding of, um, of our pets. And I think that's why you know, when we think about end of life, my role as a veterinarian is important, but not nearly as important as you as that pet's owner or as the client, because yeah. you understand that your own animal's behavior and your own animal's joys and sorrows better than I, better than I will. Now, I have rather glibly in the past on this program perhaps said that animals don't comprehend their own mortality now that that may not be entirely true i don't know if we can if we can know that but i'm operating under the uh, in the assumption that my cat margaret oliver is not walking around thinking you know to be or not to be you know this is not <laughs> something that's going through her head she's mostly thinking about uh you know what electrical cords she can chew on right. and um 
you know, and whether she can knock stuff over. So and certainly if she was thinking about her or, well, own mortality, probably would not chewing on those yeah, electrical cords. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and so if, if that is the case that, that most pets aren't spending a lot of time thinking about whether there's an afterlife or something, then it is incumbent upon us to, to, of course, as these animals' caregivers, to make these important decisions. And, and one of these most important decisions is, is concerning quality of life. Now, you say that, that the most important person in this equation is the, is the pet's caregiver. Yeah. And yet, um, it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which a veterinarian like yourself might be really indispensable in helping a person understand that a pet may be suffering. Absolutely. And I think this is where kind of the philosophy of how to practice medicine is so important. You know, a century ago, we were very much in the paternalistic uh, sort of practice. And you see this borne out. I don't know if anyone watches the um, PBS uh, show um, on James Harriet, um, where... Uh, in one of the scenes, there's this horse that's suffering. The owner does not want to euthanize it. And the veterinarian takes it own, into his own hands and euthanizes it because that is what he believes is best for the animal. Um, and so it was the doctor's decision, both in human and veterinary medicine, um, and the patient was more a bystander. And we see that shift happen as... Um, initially kind of it swung too far in the opposite direction with a technical model where some doctors saw themselves as I'm just essentially providing a menu of your options and this is McDonald's and you choose which option you want. And I think we've now seen it try to go through this more middle ground um, of uh, like a, a shared decision-making model, um, which my for favorite is kind of this interpretive model where the my role as a veterinarian um, is to help the client, help the caregiver identify the patient's goals and values, and then together we treat create a quality of life assessment and treatment plans based on those shared goals and values. Okay, okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So how might one of your consultations go with a client? Yeah, so I think there's a few different um, uh, uh, quality of life assessments um, that are popularized in veterinary medicine. There's similar ones in human medicine. The CDC and the World Health Organization both have ones that people can fill out for themselves as they're nearing uh, end of life to discuss palliative and hospice options. Um, but in veterinary medicine, um, there's uh, kind of a few ones. And I would say, like simplified, there's this one quote that I like that says, um, one exercise that seems to help owners is to write a list of things they feel that make their pet's life enjoyable, the reasons that, they, that life is fun and how they as an owner can tell that the animal enjoys them. And that's kind of like it in its, in its most simplistic form. Okay. All right. So maybe making that evaluation could look something like, you know, an older dog that formerly loved to go out and play and run and to, uh, you know, uh, just be outdoors and be active. Mm -hmm. And maybe this older animal just doesn't feel up to it anymore. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And I think this is where individualized medicine comes in because maybe you have a, a border collie who's like that dog who loves running out, chasing a Frisbee constantly. And as his arthritis worsens, he can't enjoy those things. Whereas I have a 13 and a half year old greyhound who, you know, <laughs> since I rescued him from, uh, from racing, he hasn't, he's barely moved in his life. Yeah, right, so that, right. that would not be a part of my assessment of his quality yeah. of life. His would be much more food oriented. I see. Um, and, and so when that list of things that starts to dwindle, um, you know, when they can't enjoy those same things, maybe that's, that's when you should consult a veterinarian and we can come up with kind of this discussion about what to do next. When that border collie can't go out and run, that doesn't mean end of life necessarily, but that means maybe we should do interventions, pain management strategies, uh, integrative medicine of things like acupuncture or things along those lines to help him get back to those things as much as he can for the time he has. Yeah, okay. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense too because um, I think we all as human beings can understand that as we age, some of the activities that we enjoyed in our youth become out of reach. Now, this isn't yeah. this isn't true for everybody. I mean, you still sometimes see, you know, 90-year-olds uh, going skydiving or, <laughs> um, you know, dancing the night away, and God bless them, uh, you know, but I, I can imagine that I will be a fairly sedentary old man, uh, and, and that in and of itself doesn't frighten me. However, what would frighten me is to think that I might be in pain a lot. Yeah. And, and yeah. that might be an analysis that someone needs to to make and, and with the with the help of a veterinarian too you might you might see your pet maybe stopping some of its activities that it once enjoyed and it'd be easy to sort of just consider that a, just a natural part of aging but maybe that's not the case maybe maybe our pets really aren't engaging in some of these activities because they're just uncomfortable Absolutely. And and I think the other aspect of this is, you know, you're living with your pet each day. And so a, a lot of these declines as you age are very gradual and it, it's difficult to pick up on those more gradual changes. Um, and so that's why a lot of these scoring systems have been developed that um, – these quality of life assessment scores have been developed that give you broad categories so you can focus on different categories. And again, you might weight them different. Exercise might not be a huge one if you're, if you live a more sedentary lifestyle. Um, and then you get to score them over time or it can be something. Uh, and so I guess one of them is the four H's and two M's. Um, so hurt, like you mentioned, pain to make sure that's under control, hunger, hydration, um, and happiness. And then the two M's are mobility and more good days than bad. And that's kind of one of the more um, like in-depth ones. Um, some of them, uh, one of the recommendations from Ohio State, um, which has a, a great resource for um, quality of life assessment, they can be as simple as just a smiley or a frowny face on a calendar from day to day. So you can get a more objective idea of, oh, this is how many bad days my patient or my my own animal has had this month, or this is, oh, maybe they are having a better time, even though those 
more sad moments stick in my mind better. And as you say, we as these pets caregivers will be the most perceptive uh, and the most attuned to these pets. I hesitate to use the word feelings, but uh, their their yeah. own, um, you know, what it is that might qualify as a good day or a bad day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm only seeing a snapshot, you know, when they come in and then your interpretation, what you tell me when you come into my exam room. Um, and that's especially true, you know, I, I am in emergency and critical care. And so I see you on those especially fraught days, on those really difficult days, whereas you are there with them every second of every day. And, and so you have much more information than I'm going to have about your own animal's uh, quality of life during those times. Okay, so hurt is pretty easy to understand. An animal that is clearly uh, feeling pain yeah. is one that will require attention. Uh, because for many of us, it is not possible to decipher what precisely is causing our pet's pain. Right. So it might be very wise to get the opinion of a veterinary specialist. The hydration uh, is one that you said. So this mm -hmm. is an animal that isn't drinking. Correct. Right? Uh, which, it, you know, an animal that's not drinking, that's a bad sign. Yeah. And, and it's uncomfortable too. One of the most common uh, reported complaints in people who are in ICUs is dry mouth um, because it's it's not a, a comfortable sensation. It's distressing. And so if your uh, dog, maybe less so cats since they're less water motivated usually, um, is not able to drink, not able to rise to drink or doesn't have interest in that, that again is a, is potentially a, a discussion point uh, with your veterinarian. Now, hunger, I can see this one being potentially confusing because there are many reasons that a, a dog or a cat might not want to eat. And not all Definitely. of these are necessarily terrible. I mean, it could be just there's a, a injury in the mouth that could be, you know, addressed and then things will go back to normal. Right. And um, if we're talking about this within end of life, um, that's where the consultation with the veterinarian is is so important for things like hunger. Maybe it is due to an injury. Maybe it's due to nausea, something that we can potentially control with medication. Um, or um, if we've tried anti-nausea medications and that's not enough, we can we do have different appetite stimulants at our disposal. Things again that we can work together as a as a team to to try to um, uh, manage. Now we said hurt, hunger, hydration. What was the fourth H? Happiness. Happiness. Okay. Now <clears throat> this one is obviously subjective, of course, and. But, it, you know, we know our pets. Yeah. We know when they just don't have that wag in their tail anymore. You know, we know when when they're just not purring anymore. I mean, we, we, can, we can ascertain that. It may be hard to pinpoint why. Right. And, and I agree completely. This, this is probably the most subjective, but also probably the one that you're going to know best. I, I was visiting one of my friends in, in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about how her routine with her dog after they get home from work every day is um, she hides somewhere in the house and then lets out a whistle, and the dog searches the whole house for her. Yeah. Um, and then once she finds her, 
uh, you know, is overjoyed, yeah. wagging her tail, jumping and barking. Yeah. And that is, you know, oftentimes maybe both of their happiest yeah. moment that yeah, day. Sure. Um, and if that's not something, you know, as the dog ages and maybe it goes deaf or has mobility issues, we need to find new ways for for that happiness to be maintained. For my own animals, um, you know, my greyhound, his happiness is all motivated, revolved around food. Yeah. And so losing that ability to to eat or something that impacted his appetite would be really catastrophic for him. Or if you have a cat that really enjoys, um, you know, climbing up on on things, yeah. or, you know, mobility could impact that. And and you're going to uh, you have the closest relationship with this animal. Maybe it's a your hunting dog, you know, who loses the ability to do that as he ages, and uh, or agility, like we discussed before. So we talked about one of the M's is more good days than bad. What what is the other M? Is that mobility? mobility? Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest ones that we see, especially in dogs as they age. And you know, dogs get arthritis. They can yep. they can have that affect their their joints, and and it can be uncomfortable. Um, you know, some dogs can even develop neurological issues that can exactly uh, you know affect the their use of their legs and yep. so forth. Um, now, this may not necessarily. Uh, be the end of the line for an animal that has no other underlying issues, right? right? I mean, it could be that your, you know, your dachshund jumps off the couch one day and hurts its back and, you know, the back legs don't work really well anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can get that animal some treatment and, and maybe that animal can go on and, and live exactly a, a life that is mm -hmm. otherwise as long as any other dachshund. Right. Uh, but it, it may also be that your animal that has no other underlying comorbidities or what have you may be experiencing something that reduces its mobility that may not may not be something that uh is as easily addressed exactly and um so it may be something like end stage arthritis that unfortunately we've done years of pain management and just like us our ability to to become, stay mobile decreases. And a wheelchair might be an option for us at that point. And it is an option for some dogs. I have a French bulldog who, he lives a pretty sedentary life already. If, if he had mobility issues, I, I don't think it would impact his happiness um, all that much. We, we would manage and maybe he could be outfitted with a, with a wheelchair if needed or something like that. Whereas if you have like that dog that... Um, is used to being very mobile and now has some condition that's going to prevent that from ever returning, that might have a more significant impact on your assessment of his quality of life since that was what brought him most enjoyment. Right. So ultimately, quality of life really should be our primary concern when it comes to thinking about our pets and their health uh, particularly at the end of life and we we need to make we need to make decisions that are based on the reality of the situation and maybe not what we necessarily had hoped for or expected uh because uh, you know we don't always get what we want and and it would be 
it, it, it's really tough. And I, I get that this is a fraud decision because one, as as we said, you know, we love our pets and it, we can make a decision of like, no, we just want, we want this pet to be around for as absolutely as long as possible. Right. Um, it's it's and I'm not saying that the, that the majority of people by any means have that perspective, um, but we're human beings, you know, and and it can be difficult to make some of these decisions. I think that right now is when we're going to take our first break, and I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Jake Wolf, and we're going to be coming back with more right after a break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Jake Wolf, And we're talking about end-of-life care and pets. Earlier in the program, we were talking about quality-of-life issues, and certainly that is critically important. But right now we're going to talk about palliative care because, Dr. Wolf, you know, palliative care is something that many people may know about from the realm of human medicine mm-hmm. uh, and, and taking care of, you know, especially elderly loved ones. Um, talk about what this looks like in the care of our pets and companion animals. Yeah. So it can vary. So palliative care is the is providing pain and symptom relief um and in human medicine emotional support and and spiritual support um with during an illness. Um and uh I think they often get talked about together, so palliative care and then hospice care. Hospice care is essentially palliative care at the end of life. So focusing on um, uh, pain relief, symptom relief, understanding that death is a natural process that is going to come for our animals and and us, and that, um, again, prioritizes that quality of life over quantity of life. And in animals, um, palliative care can take many forms. Um, It may be... um, Say your cat was diagnosed with lymphoma, um, a, a, a type of cancer of the blood, and instead of doing chemotherapy, you elect to do steroids um, to give a short period of time of benefit, knowing that 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 time will be limited. It may be some palliative care may go much longer than that as well. It may be something like your dog is diagnosed with severe osteoarthritis. Um, and you start on pain management for for years and years. That's um, that is a form of palli- palliative care um, because fixing the actual problem would require something like a hip replacement or a knee replacement in in human in human medicine. Um, those are things that we don't always do in in veterinary medicine. Yeah. Okay. So so when we're talking about some of these conditions. Now, you, you mentioned a lymphoma, mm-hmm. and as someone who has had a pet that uh, experienced this, it it was, oh, it was heartbreaking because this was a, a condition that uh, unfortunately was just not going to be curable. Right. And when our veterinarian told us this, it it was not it was not a shock 
I mean, it, we we understood. It, it was not. Uh, it didn't come as a huge surprise. It was yeah. it was painful, but it wasn't um, something that was difficult to understand or comprehend, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that many human beings are acquainted with cancer and from either our own experience or from those of friends and loved ones. And, and the decision to try to make our pets last, you know, weeks and days as pain-free as possible, as tolerable as can, could be. um, It wasn't a hard decision for us to make at that point. Right. And yet, um, you know, it it does require that he, that we are always considering sort of the best interest of our pet right. rather than maybe the best interest of us. You know, I mean, I guess that we could have we could have vehemently disagreed with our vet and tried to go another route and mm-hmm. you know maybe pursued something that was you know maybe not ever going to work and to begin with. Um, you know, but but keeping our focus on our pet's quality of life allowed us to make a decision that in the end, I think that we were, you know, comfortable with if we were still heartbroken. Yeah. Um, now, with something like you say, um, osteoarthritis, now it may be possible to to manage this and have our pets die from some other condition. Absolutely. Which, and most commonly do. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's a, a, a great goal. I mean, not that our pets are going to die of something else. Um, but, I mean, that the thing that is currently ailing them the most, uh, n- for it to not be the thing that ultimately takes their lives, then then that's, that's the best you can hope for. Right. And palliative shouldn't have, like you allude to, shouldn't have any negative connotation around it. Um, it... It just means not going for that curative treatment. Um, And so it might be because that's not needed. We can manage the symptoms of the disease um, and we don't need to go for a cure. It can also mean something like your pet was diagnosed with a terminal illness and palliation could be the only option. And so it's kind of this broad umbrella term, but there's a variety of reasons for choosing palliation. Like I mentioned, those two, or maybe you tried curative treatment and it didn't succeed, um, things along those lines. Yeah, and of course, your veterinarian is going to be, is is really going to be on your side through all of this. Because any any good veterinarian, I should say, yeah. is going to be somebody who has a deep, has deep empathy for for us as human beings and our care and our affection for these pets, uh, but also, you know, has an understanding and a knowledge of what is possible and and what is maybe not realistic to hope for. Uh, and, and a good veterinarian is going to, you know, help, help talk you through this um, and is going to advocate for the best interests of this animal while also considering, you know, the human being's feelings as well. Um, when you're, discussing palliative options with your clients what what are they um what are their questions to you yeah i i think um like you kind of mentioned these are going to be very individualized conversations because um the needs of the 
animal um, and the needs of the person are going to be very different depending on the the species and the size of that pet um, and the ability of the the caregiver to do things at home. Um, so I think one question that we that we might get, especially if we are moving from end of moving to end of life palliative care or hospice care, is uh, what is this process going to look like um, for us? And um, as as this animal moves towards the end of its life, and um, and my response is it, it it is a lot of intensive nursing care. Um, that you would be providing as the caregiver at home. So um, things that we are used to nurses providing us uh, in hospital or in a nursing home, you become the one having to provide that. So things like avoiding pressure sores, making sure that animal is placed in a public area so that they can, even if they're not mobile, still see the people who bring them joy each day keeping that animal clean um, as it urinates and defecates if it's not able to get up and go outside to do that anymore. Um, and then keep it finding ways to keep that animal animal fed as, right. it, as its ability to eat on its own. Right. And, and, and some of these may be genuinely challenging. I mean, it could be Absolutely. that it could be that you need your cat to take some kind of medication and your cat doesn't want to do that. That sounds like someone who's medicated a cat yeah. before. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you gotta you gotta be have some band aids ready. Um, so, so when we're um, when we're trying to you know evaluate the best options for keeping these pets as comfortable as we can, as you say, that's a highly individual um, conversation between every client and every veterinarian, um, and. But it does. That doesn't necessarily make it any easier. No, it's gonna be. It's gonna be tough. Absolutely. And like just a example, like in a Chihuahua with mobility issues is very different, of course, than a Great Dane with mobility issues. Right. Uh, I live by myself. I could certainly not manage a hundred fifty pound Great Dane that cannot walk on yeah. its own. Yeah. But could get by with a Chihuahua that could sure not. an animal that you could just pick up and take from room to room with you, so that the animal is is always has company. Exactly. Um, you know, picking that animal up to to take it outside if you wanted to. Yep. You know, this would be achievable. Uh, and you know, certainly nobody is uh, making a decision on which pet to get based on uh, how easy or hard it is going to be to take care of at the end of its right. life. Uh, it, it certainly makes a difference uh, depending on what kind of pet one has. Uh, I have, you know, I've, I've often thought about how challenging it must be for people who have horses to absolutely to, to do some of this care. I mean, yep. for for an animal that genuinely is much heavier than the human being that's caring for it. Yeah, and and I think that's where prior planning can can really help as an animal nears its end of life we we know that that will happen one day and if it's a chronic illness that's bringing them there Colorado State has a a great hospice program um, and has put out a lot of good guidance for veterinarians and for owners as has um, lap of love which is a national um, hospice and euthanasia veterinary service one that we have um, here in Gainesville as well and um, Colorado State recommends coming up with as we're nearing 
kind of the end of life, especially for hospice patients, kind of a a euthanasia plan, if that's how you envision the end of life going. So what sort of things would guide you towards that decision as, as we're nearing that point? A natural death plan, if you want your animal to die at home, a very detailed plan of what what that would look like, what you expect, and how you're going to manage those last moments, both for your family and for the pet. And then lastly, an emergency plan. So maybe we're expecting the animal to die as a certain way, and then it it doesn't follow that plan. Right. And it goes into respiratory distress, and that's too much for you to manage. Well, having an emergency clinic that you know that you want to bring that animal to and a plan for what you would want. So maybe you bring them in and you say, from the outset, I, I, you know, we've been discussing end of life and hospice, and we know that that this is time. Or even just at that triage moment when you come into the ER, you let them know, um, you know, your resuscitation orders. Like if if your animal's struggling to breathe, you say we've been discussing this and we want them marked as a, a do not resuscitate or a DNR, just letting the veterinary staff know, you know, we've come prepared for that sort of situation. In the next segment of our program, we're, we're certainly going to talk about euthanasia, but I, before we even get into that, with any of these palliative decisions and end-of-life decisions that we make for our pets... Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill, and my guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Jake Wolf. And we're talking today about end-of-life care for our pets. And so far, we've talked about quality of life, and we've talked about palliative care. And here in this next segment, I want to let you all know that we're going to be talking about euthanasia. And so this is a pretty sensitive topic. I just want you to all know in advance that that's what we're going to discuss right, discuss right now. Now, euthanasia is something, Dr. Wolf, that many of us now have experience with from our pets, though. I feel like, you know, I can remember I can remember a time, you know, in my childhood in which I barely knew anybody who who got veterinary care for their pets at all, mm-hmm. much much less um, you know, sought out appropriate end of life care. It was just like uh, my dog's not feeling well or my cat's not feeling well. And then your cat just like went out of the house one day and just never came back. And, yeah. you know, you just assumed that your cat had, had died somewhere, which is a, a terrible thing to ponder. Uh, I'm glad that people do pursue veterinary care more than they formerly did. Um, and, and, of course, there's something that ought to be considered here. And that is for for many people, veterinary care is an expense that is not always easy to pay for. Of course. And and that can even be for palliative care. And, you know, so it occurs to me that some people, you know, may make decisions about their pet's end of life based on their finances. Yeah. And, and so that all plays into a decision that's already difficult to make Correct. to begin with. Yeah. And, and that's why these discussions are so individualized is the right answer for one family is not the right answer for every family because the like like we had said before the state of the animal the state of the family the state of the family's finances are all going to come into play for these discussions about quality of life end of life and then as we get into kind of this third topic quality of death um yeah 
and right. kind of a underused phrase, I think, but something that w- we all have to think about. I I think that as human beings who love these animals, we we don't want to think about our pets suffering and I think almost all of us when um when given when given the the facts of you know oh well your pet has this condition it is probably not treatable at least in terms of cure cure that right. is to say cure yep. um we we need to discuss you know end end of life options now it may be that you you choose to take your pet home and surround it with as much love as possible in a familiar setting to that animal and you know that that may be right for you you know that that may be what works for you and or you may choose to you know you may take your your pet into the veterinarian and i imagine that this happens from time to time you take your pet into the veterinarian with some idea that the pet is experiencing something that isn't mm-hmm. normal and you get a diagnosis that you had no idea about and then suddenly you're face to face with making a decision about the end of this pet's life absolutely i mean these are these are very different scenarios and and yet they're they probably happen every day yeah and and this is why and we have very different approaches um you know, with those more expected ones, we can plan for that a little bit better and make things like at-home euthanasia an option, which is something that practitioners do, what veterinarians do in the area. Um, I see a lot more in-clinic euthanasia or in-clinic death, given the, the nature of those emergencies that are coming to see me. And because it's so sudden, I think this is where we end up getting a lot of questions from uh, clients about the process, what it's going to look like, that sort of thing. Um, and what can so you tell? Yeah, I mean, what can you tell? What can you tell clients about euthanasia? Those who have never, never had to make this decision for, but, but never had to make this decision before, because they're gonna, they're gonna be uneasy about it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I understand that, and I think. Our purpose, I I would tell them, our purpose of it is to relieve suffering, essentially a way of doing no harm, um, continuing that that medicinal mantra um, by um, not prolonging that that patient's suffering since they can't understand that that prolongation. Um, And then for the process, um, we are... uh, we usually do it in, in a couple different steps. So we give a, f- a s- first drug. Um, I usually expa- explain to clients I'm going to give a, a f- injection first. And the, that first injection is a drug called propofol that we give. It's the same drug that you get if you're going to be induced for anesthesia. And so it, it, it's a very peaceful transition, just feels like you're falling asleep. And the purpose of that drug is to eliminate any pain, anxiety, distress that that animal is feeling in that moment. And then the second drug that we give is a drug called pentobarbital. It's an overdose of a, of a barbiturate that, that ceases the electrical, stops the electrical activity in the brain, the lungs, and the heart, and causes the actual death of the animal. We can surmise then that the animal isn't feeling pain at that moment. Correct. It yeah. may be 
the first time in some time that that animal has not felt pain. Yeah, and and that is something that I always tell them. They will not feel any pain or discomfort. They may you may experience other things. So some of the other things that I w- usually notify them about is it's not like TV. The animals do not close their eyes when they die, and so that can be startling to some people. They might take a couple big breaths even after the even after they've passed. Um, the body can do that kind of automatically. And they may urinate and defecate during that process, which can be startling to some owners. But like you mentioned, there's no pain or discomfort. In the couple minutes left, um, it's this is this is a this is a tough thing because you know I've I've had to go through this. Yeah. Many people listening to this program will have had to go through this with this uh, and go through this. And, and many people who are listening will someday have to mm-hmm. go through this. It's never easy. No. Right. I mean, and you can, you can have in your lifetime a half dozen pets and, you know, have to do this. Easier for each one. Yeah. And it's not going to get any easier. Yeah. Um, but if you consider that part of, Part of loving an animal is is doing right by that animal. Sometimes this can be the most loving decision you make. Very true. And, um, yeah, very, very true. And, again, that's in a decision that's in consultation with your with your veterinarian and with your own knowledge of of your animal. Um, I don't want to, to go over, I guess, the other... Um, big question that people often ask at this time is um, whether to stay stay present for the euthanasia. Yeah. Some owners um, aren't able to stay there. Um, it brings too much pain and distress to, on themselves. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people, um, thinking through whether you want that beforehand is often a good choice. And then if you have children, especially oh, young children, right. whether you want them present. Or whether they want to be present, and those are decisions that, boy, it—it's—it's it's almost too much for a radio show to even be able to 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 go through those. Um, but I just think here in the last you know little bit of the program, Doctor Wolf, we, we should reassure owners that you know this is part of life, and they're not going to be judged. No, and they can really do something that ultimately will give them more peace than not. Uh, Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. That was Dr. Jake Wolf from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Dana Hill. I'm grateful to you all for listening to the program today, and I hope you'll join me next week for another Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye.